Welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is podcast number 50. Today, we have the pleasure of re-interviewing Dr. Richard Johnson. He was podcast number 14 a year and change ago regarding the survival switch and the story of the uric ace mutation, the elevations in uric acid with fructose metabolism and how that's affecting the human body. Now we're going to head back with Dr. Johnson into the same area of research, but now we're going to look at it from the perspective of maternal health and in specific, what's happening to the placenta, to the child inside that placenta, and to the risk of early stage hypertension, otherwise known as preeclampsia. For those who did not listen to episode number 14 with Dr. Johnson, let me explain a little bit about who he is. He is the Thomas Burrell Professor of Medicine and the Chief of the Renal Division and Hypertension at the University of Colorado. He is a graduate of the University of Wisconsin-Madison with a major in anthropology, which is one of the reasons I absolutely love speaking to him, because his view of the world and human health comes from a perspective that I think is turning out to be the most enlightening perspective when it comes to evolutionary biology and how we can learn from the past to gain a much better understanding of the present and then the future. He then went on to finish his graduate medical degree at the University of Minnesota Medical School and has become a physician nephrologist who's focused his research on the role of sugar and especially the molecule fructose in what's driving the problems in human health with metabolic syndrome, diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, and also kidney disease. Much of his work has explored the role of fructose metabolism, especially the generation of uric acid in driving this phenotypic abnormality in humans. And his work has included a ranging molecular biology, integrative physiology, and evolutionary biology landscape view of disease. He is the author of the book, The Sugar Fix, and then the book that I absolutely love, which is Nature Wants Us to Be Fat, the number two book that I give away as gifts. If you have not listened to podcast number 14, I highly, highly encourage it, or the following podcast that I did is a summation of his entire book, a little bit shorter, certainly can listen to that as well, but listening to Dr. Johnson himself is ideal and what I would actually recommend first. This podcast is a continuation of that previous discussion, like I said, but now we're going to look at it from the maternal perspective. So without wasting any more time, I'm going to dive right into the research that Dr. Johnson has recently published. So here we go with a second interview with the impressive researcher, Dr. Richard Johnson. Rick, such a pleasure to have you back. I know you're traveling and teaching and doing all kinds of great things, but welcome back. Thank you very much. It's really a delight being back on your program. So you're still one of the most exciting researchers I follow. And uh, after our first look at the survival switch and why nature wanted us to be fat, now we're going to head down a little bit of a different pathway with something even near and dear to my heart, which is the pregnancy state and that which brings us the most beautiful children that are healthy. So let's begin our conversation with a slight, just a quick synopsis for those who didn't hear your first podcast about the, the uricase mutation and the pathway. And then we're going to head into the placenta and what happens. Yes. 
So uh, we've been very interested in what causes uh, metabolic disease, but, you know, things like obesity, diabetes, fatty liver, hypertension. And it's known that uh, these, these disorders are <clears throat> metabolically driven and, and uh, key in metabolism is the mitochondria and the mitochondria make energy uh, and we call it ATP and um, and in all these states, these metabolic states, the mitochondria seem to be suppressed and they're not making as much ATP. And it can be associated with not just uh, obesity and diabetes, but with aging and fatigue and all kinds of things. So uh, we've been very interested in, in what modulates or what controls the mitochondrial function. And we found that there was one nutrient that tends to lower ATP. Uh, as opposed to increase it, you know, nutrients are supposed to be calories, calories give us energy. Uh, so we would normally think of foods as raising our energy level. And, uh, and, and fructose does raise the energy level, but it's total energy and not the active energy. So total energy includes ATP, which is what we used for everything we want to do, and stored energy. Stored energy is fat, and fat can be broken down to generate ATP. And that's why animals that hibernate get fat because they're not eating and they use the fat to help them survive. So fat is a form of energy. But um, what fructose does is it stimulates fat production and uh, actually blocks the mitochondria from making ATP. And it does it through a substance called uric acid. Uh, and uric acid is produced when fructose is metabolized. And it's the fructose is the only carbohydrate that makes uric acid. Uh, you can get uric acid from alcohol. You can get uric acid from some uh, foods like meats. And, uh, but it's generally processed meats that are rich in glutamates and so forth that produce uric acid. So, you know, bacon. <laughs> And, and shellfish and things like that can. So anyway, so the uric acid we figured out was actually playing a role in suppressing the energy in the cell. And uh, interestingly, humans have higher uric acid levels than all, all other mammals. And, uh, you know, and so we get high uric acids and, and people know about uric acid because when it's really high, it can precipitate into crystals and, and the crystals can deposit in joints like the big toe where it can cause arthritis. And, you know, there's a lot of middle-aged men who are a little bit overweight who suddenly get these terrible, painful joint pains and they, it turns out to be gout. And there's about nine to 12 million people in the, in the country that get gout. Most of them are men, um, but women can get gout too. So the, uh, so uric acid is has long been known to be a bad guy. Uh, and But humans have higher uric acid levels. And when we eat certain foods like fructose, they can go up higher. So a normal uric acid in a, in a mammal is around one milligram per deciliter, one, just remember one. Uh, and when you, uh, when you uh, humans have uric acids that vary from three to 15, and uh, the, the range is largely driven by, uh, by diet, by kidney function, and a little bit by genetics. And, uh, and men have higher uric acid levels than women because estrogens, which women make, 
up to menopause um, uh, help to facilitate excretion of uric acid. So young women tend not to get gout because they have lower uric acids because of the estrogen. But after menopause, the estrogen levels go down and the uric acid goes up. And, and so, um, so anyway, so, so you, humans have higher uric acid levels and uh, we have found that that plays a role in driving metabolic diseases. So it's not just causing gout, um, but uric acid in our studies seems to have a role in, in obesity and diabetes and hypertension uh, as well. And it's because it works on the mitochondria. So you brought up, uh, I'm getting back to your, your point because uh, you, you brought up the point that, you know, why do humans have a higher uric acid? That uh, Why would we want more gout, more obesity, more diabetes? Right. Um, and it did occur as a mutation in a, in a gene that regulates uric acid. So we, there's an enzyme that most mammals have that breaks down uric acid. So uh, it keeps the uric acid levels really nice and low. And we lost that gene. And I was very interested in why, just like uh, you brought it up. And it turned out that it occurred like 15 million years ago in an ancestor that uh, actually was an ancestor, not just the humans, but to the great apes. So it was really going way, way back before humans existed. And, 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 uh, but it occurred during a period of time when there was a massive um, uh, change in climate. And uh, instead of global warming, it was global cooling, but it, it had the same effects of making food less available. And, and especially during the winter. Uh, and so these uh, early ancestors of ours couldn't uh, find foods in the during the winter or the cooler months of the year and they started to starve and and uh, I worked with an anthropologist who was an expert in this uh, time and he pointed out that that during these cooler months these uh, ancestral uh, humans uh, actually uh, started starving to death and they almost became extinct, especially in Europe, where they, where they were living in both Africa and Europe. And we think the mutation occurred in Europe because the, the, uh, the, these early ancestral humans and apes were living in this area. And then some migrated to Southeast Asia to become the orangutans. Some migrated back to Africa and um, to become great apes and also humans. And, and so it turns out that we think that this mutation occurred during a time when they were starving and probably provided a survival advantage. And in fact, we resurrected the extinct gene and uh, showed in, uh, in animals as well as in a cell culture that this enzyme actually, uh, when it was mutated or lost, that it it in effect uh, made us more susceptible to gaining fat from even small amounts of, of food and especially small amounts of fructose. So we are more sensitive than most animals to fructose. And when we eat a lot of fructose, we can put on fat very easily, much easier than other species. And, uh, you know, so fructose isn't fruit. We think of fructose as healthy and actually you won't get fat eating natural fruit, uh, especially if you just eat a few of them, because there's not that much fructose in an individual fruit. Uh, 
but the animals that use fructose to gain weight, uh, like uh, hibernating bears, they'll eat thousands of berries and a lot more fruit. So they really get a lot more fructose. So we, we don't really get a lot of fructose from natural fruits. We can get it from fruit juice, but not so much from a natural fruit. You know, uh, there are exceptions. Figs, for example, <laughs> contain a lot of fructose, figs and dates. And so there, I mean, there are exceptions, but you know, like kiwi has almost no, it's really low in sugar. Uh, lemon and lime basically don't have any sugar at all. Um, and, uh, you know, and it varies among fruits and, and a natural fruit by itself doesn't have a lot. So what happens is the reason uh, we got into trouble is because we're eating a lot of fructose from sugar, table sugar. And table sugar and high fructose corn syrup are sweeteners that everyone knows because it's put in 70%, 80% of the processed foods. Uh, it's soft drinks uh, are filled with this stuff and it's extreme amounts and you know you go to dairy queen or these fast food shops that have a lot of sweets and uh, ice cream and filled with these sugars and so we we're getting about 15 percent of our diet from added sugars and that's just way too much and so now we're loading up with fructose we've had a mutation we're set to to put, you know, to get fat. And our work suggests that a lot of the metabolic syndrome, obesity, diabetes, hypertension is really related to this. And what, what really made it more significant uh, was the discovery that it wasn't just the sugar we ate, but that the body can also make fructose. And uh, we can particularly, we make, we can only make fructose from glucose. So Glucose is another sugar. It's the main one in our blood, but it's uh, it's really from starch. It comes from starch mainly and starch, starchy foods like uh, potatoes, rice, bread, crackers. These things can, uh, when you eat a lot of the glucose, it, it can stimulate the, the conversion to, to fructose. And certain things also stimulate it like... Uh, Glucose, I'm sorry, uh, salty foods can stimulate that conversion. And also uh, uric acid itself. If you have a high uric acid, that tends to help you convert the glucose to fructose. And so there's like a positive feedback loop, what we call, where, you know, if you're overweight and your uric acid's high, you're actually going to convert carbs to fructose more easily than someone who does not. So, Bottom line is um, our discovery and also the work of others, it wasn't just us, but um, but basically we've kind of identified a general mechanism for what causes obesity and it kind of explains how the low carb diet works. It explains why uh, just reducing calories can help it. You know, it provides a lot of insights into the current, current story. And what we're talking about today is how this, this pathway actually can also be important in, in brain disorders and in pregnancy disorders. And so, uh, you know, so that's the quick background. <laughs> Sorry, it yeah. took so long. No, it, it has to be that at that length, Rick, because in order to, for folks to get the full, full analysis of it, they have to hear it. And frankly, I think they really need to go back and listen to podcast number 14, just to really get the full story. Cause yeah. the anthropologic view of this, I think is so powerful yeah. for people to understand that these are not mistakes of mutational stupidity. These are, 
human evolutionary advantages that are only disrupted now because of our choices and our lifestyle factors. So let's go now into the preeclampsia pregnancy story. So it turns out that fructose is such a beautiful uh, molecule when it comes to the early state of pregnancy, because it is utilized primarily for building blocks of the child, but also in a hypoxic state. So let's talk about what the placenta looks like and how it develops and why fructose is so important. And then, oh, by the way, our lifestyle choices are screwing it up potentially. Yeah. So uh, it's really interesting though. You know, we, we mentioned how the body can make fructose and, um, and fructose is, turns out to be, to help animals under low oxygen conditions. And it was really a fantastic study was published in nature, the top, one of the top science journals where they were looking at this thing called a naked mole rat, which lives in Africa. And it's a, it's a guy that can burrow deep in the, in the ground. And what it does is uh, it lives in these burrows where there's very low oxygen. And if you put like a mouse in there or something that doesn't, that's not used to living in a low oxygen state, it, it can, you know, it can be just too low on oxygen and the animal can die quickly. But these, these animals make fructose in their body. And when they make the fructose, they actually can, uh, can, reduce the oxygen needs because remember the mitochondria use most of the oxygen. The way we make ATP uses oxygen. And one of the key reasons we breathe oxygen is so that we can feed the mitochondria with the oxygen and they use it to make ATP, but you can make ATP without oxygen and it's called glycolysis and it makes much less, but it can make it in a low oxygen state. So uh, these animals when they're down in the burrows, they kind of live uh, in a glycolytic state. They 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 uh, are not making the ATP so much from the mitochondria. They they try to conserve their oxygen, and this is how they live. Well, it turns out that when a person uh, gets pregnant, that the egg initially the fertilized egg has to implant uh, in the uterus. And, and then form a placenta and, and develop its circulation. And for the, for the placenta to turn, I mean, for the egg to turn into a baby, it has to go through a period where it needs to induce its blood supply so that it can really get enough oxygen. And, but in the early stages of pregnancy, it doesn't really have a big blood supply initially, right? And so it's kind of living in a low oxygen state. And so guess what? <laughs> the placenta makes fructose. And uh, it was known for a long time. And interestingly, some animals that kind of live in low oxygen states, they produce huge amounts of fructose in the placenta. And the whale, for example, you know, which has to dive deep. And then when it goes down deep, it, it basically gets quite epoxic. It goes into a low oxygen setting because, uh, and, uh, and, and, and the way it survives is, is the, for the pregnancy is, is that the animal makes huge amounts of fructose in the placenta. And so, uh, and it's also true for some other animals and humans. Humans uh, make a lot of fructose. 
We think, and the studies suggest that the fructose is assisting the placenta, or the, 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 the baby, uh, or the early fetus uh, to, for survival. And, uh, and it's a good thing. And right around the first trimester, when it ends, right around 20 weeks, the fructose production goes to way down and blood supply is really getting better. And, and so that it's a temporary thing. It's, a, it's only in the beginning. But remember how fructose can raise blood pressure and do all these things as well. And what we think uh, happens uh, is that uh, in preeclampsia, there's continued production of fructose. And one of the big breakthroughs in understanding preeclampsia was recognizing that the, the baby doesn't get as good blood supply, that, that preeclampsia seems to be initiated by uh, impaired uh, blood supply to the fetus. And there's pretty good data that the um, spiral arteries and you know that the, the the placenta implant uh, is not getting its full blood supply, and you can create a preeclamptic state in animals by reducing blood supply to the fetus. And this, and and what we think is going on is that when that low oxygen state persists. Uh, that it continues to stimulate fructose production and that that then may actually drive things like hypertension and a disease. And, you know, and it can, it can become a, a high state for the mother as well. And it's linked with the development of fatty liver and high blood pressure and dysfunction of the lining of the blood vessels, which fructose does. Uh, and so, so we think that it could be related and, and uric acid, which is produced by fructose and also goes up with kind of this low oxygen states. It goes up in preeclampsia very early on. And, um, and it's now, it's been recognized since 1960 <laughs> that a high uric acid predicts a low, a low, a small baby because the baby's not getting enough blood. Uh, oxygen, it, it, it predicts preeclampsia, it predicts gestational insulin resistance and hypertension, fatty liver. And so we believe that this is part of the process. There are other parts of the process too. And my friend, Dr. Ananth Karamachi, uh, you know, has found that um, there's, there's circulating inhibitors of blood that, that affect the blood supply. Uh, that occur in preeclampsia. Uh, one's called S-flit, and you know these these things are very important, uh, and they are associated with Im impaired uh, uh, angiogenesis or blood uh, stimulating blood supply to the placenta. It's all linked. It's all all linked, and it makes sense. And you know, really consistent with this finding is the fact that. Preeclampsia is more common in people with obesity and diabetes, and these are people in which we think this condition is activated. Uh, it's more common in uh, if you're drinking soft drinks. We're talking about nutrition. Um, there have been two or three studies, mainly from Norway, two, I, two from Norway, and I believe there's a third study out there that studied the diet of women who are pregnant. 
And it turns out if you're a soft drink drinker, where you're getting a lot of fructose, a lot, because soft drinks, that it dramatically increases your risk for preeclampsia. It's even stronger than these other risk factors like being obese and so forth. As drinking soft drinks in pregnancy, don't do it. Okay, any of you out there, don't do it. It's, I think that, you know, the data is very strong that it increases the risk for preeclampsia. So soft drinks, you know, really sugary foods, cut back on the sugar when you're pregnant. And uh, fruit juices, I don't recommend fruit juices because of the same thing. Drink a lot of water. And there are other markers besides the uric acid that go up with fructose. And one is vasopressin. Vasopressin is a hormone. Uh, and uh, so investigators from the University of Iowa and other places found that vasopressin goes up early in preeclampsia. And, and, you know, it seems like a mystery, but it, it fits. It's, part, it, it's predicted uh, based on our work. So, uh, you know, you know, first thing, recognize that it's not been proven that fructose is, um, has a major role in preeclampsia. But we do know that, you know, if you drink soft drinks, your risk for preeclampsia goes up. We do know that the placenta makes a lot of fructose and uh, we know that uric acid goes up. And so, you know, there's a lot of compelling evidence that it, it, it can do it. And in fact, if you feed fructose to pregnant mice, they they develop some features of preeclampsia and the babies are small. And, uh, you know, so I think that it's, uh, but of course these animals can degrade uric acid. So it's not, it's a milder type of disease than what we think would happen if we did the experiment in humans, which no one will ever want to do. But right. uh, of course we'd love to know if it's, if it's the cause. So, <laughs> It's an excellent summary of what I call a mechanistic pathway to a likely outcome without 100% double-blind placebo-controlled answers, right? And I'm right. I'm a big fan of DBDC, but in the absence of DBDC, we got to go with the best possible reality. Right. And there's, there's zero offense to the Hippocratic Oath to tell somebody to not consume high volumes of fructose or high volumes of starch. So I think, to your point, the pregnant state is a very inflammatory resistant state because you have an allograft half mom half dad and if you right. get inflamed and if you get inflamed relatively quickly you are likely to abort that child and and not allow it to come to term and one of the things that's super fascinating with your work is one of the major triggers of an inflammasome activation or these innate immune fire breathing cells i call them nice. <laughs> is your is uric acid and oh by the way the placenta upregulates xanthine oxidase to make more uric yes. acid and oh by the way it upregs upregulates hexokinase so the body right. wants more fructose right, right? the pregnant right. mother wants more fructose the problem is not the fructose the problem is what we're doing to make too much fructose and thereby right. too much uric acid and thereby too much inflammasome activation and then the caspase i know You've looked at this, I think, many times, but the caspase is turning on IL-1 beta, all these pro-inflammatory cytokines. So we're basically building a soup 
of inflammation, which I believe again, and we're not going to talk about this heavily today, but I believe the future is going to show us that this is one of the pathways to neurodiversity or neurodegenerative, I mean, uh, neurological problems of children, uh, babies. And I think the work that Leslie Stone and her group is doing is going to be educational to us that if we can prove the F1 generation is not getting autism because we're fantastic. It would be. We're getting rid of the upstream triggers of fructose and and high volume, you know, sucrose ingestion. Rick, they're proving your data, and and yeah. th- that to me is when we've hit the seminal moment of anthropology meets bench research meets population health data meets outcome. I mean, what else should we be looking for? No, I I, I agree. I as a researcher who's been involved in this for decades, I I realize the power of evolutionary biology. Um, it just opens the doors for understanding, uh, you know, the biology of diseases because nature is smart and it tries to, you know, find ways to improve survival. But, uh, but then it's very easy to maladapt. Uh, you know, we, we, fructose was a savior for, thousands of years and then now that we've got so much fructose we're we're actually triggered to get into trouble from excessive fructose so you're totally totally right on the money and i am i'm really interested in behavioral disorders and um and how sugar and fructose can have an effect on it And what we've learned from studies by others uh, is that if you, if you give glucose to an to a human, uh, it tends to be uh, to stimulate areas of the brain that are associated with satisfaction and um, control and satiety, at least for the first few minutes. If you, after about an hour, if you keep infusing the, it takes about an hour for the glucose to start to be converted to fructose. And, and once the glucose starts getting converted to fructose, you start seeing other patterns. But if you give glucose intravenously or orally to a person, at least that first 25 minutes is really the glucose effect. And you see an increase in blood flow. It's kind of a positive. It's satisfying. But if you give fructose intravenously or orally to a person, what you see is um, the suddenly hunger and foraging. So instead of that satisfaction, the animal, or in this case, the human, starts you know, feeling hungry and develops foraging behavior. And, um, and what that's associated with is a reduction in blood flow to certain regions of the brain, like the cortex, um, the hippocampus, uh, and so uh, it, it's actually um, reducing the ATP that's being produced in those areas. And that is associated with like a decrease in self-control and a decrease in, in, in acute memory, which actually helps the animal forage. Because when you forage, you don't you have to go into areas that you've never been. So you have to be impulsive and. You can't have a lot of self-control because you're going to go into areas that could be dangerous, but you need to get that food. You need to get, you, and so it also kind of stimulates uh, 
you know, uh, activities that involve reduced deliberation. You can't focus on one thing for a long time. You, you're looking all around. And, and so you can see how this can be associated with, you know, an excess. It could almost be linked with ADHD because you're kind of having to look around, make quick impulsive decisions. You know, you have to be, um, you know, very spontaneous. You can't concentrate too long. You don't want to have a really good recent memory because you don't really want to remember anything that's, um, that's going to scare you from proceeding. Um, and so, you know, uh, ADHD has been linked with sugar intake and bipolar disease has been linked with sugar intake. There's even studies showing high fructose levels in the brains of people with bipolar disease. And, uh, and it's also been linked with dementia. I don't know so much about autism, but it certainly would be interesting to look at. I, I think that, uh, it could, it could be involved. Uh, I, you know, I'm always open to, to understanding more. I did, but, um, but certainly uh, fructose has a lot of neurologic effects. It's not just uh, stimulating fat and uh, insulin resistance. It actually has very measurable effects on the brain that people can measure by bold MRI and various types of uh, PET scanning and so forth. They, they can, they can, I see changes that occur with fructose and, and uh, I think that it, you know, this the signature suggests that it could be involved in a variety of of behavioral disorders. We've actually published on some of these associations. Um, yeah. I think ADHD is probably one of the strongest, but bipolar disease is also very strongly linked. Yeah, I think you're onto something. And one of the other things I think is super intriguing to look at is that the. Autism, ADHD, these disorders tend to be, you know, gender located to boys more than girls. And so does the estrogen piece have a play in this where the estrogen is reducing the total uric acid load throughout life? And is that part of the situation with the exception of the pregnancy state where somebody is consuming high volumes of fructose, driving uric acid, overloading the estrogen effect, therefore then driving the effect in the child over time? Again, hypothesis, no causative data, but super intriguing. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, what's really interesting is um, that uh, it was known early on that when you have like a bipolar dis disease and a manic episode that you get this surge of uric acid that occurs and it's been reported and people, kids with ADHD and kids with bipolar disease have higher serum uric acids and a, a history of higher sugar intake. So there is this correlation, right? And um, it's incredible, but uh, way back in the, uh, 1800s, it was discovered that lithium could solubilize uric acid. And so it started to be used to treat gout, which could, you know, created some issues because, you know, people didn't understand lithium very well. But then people started noticing that the people getting lithium did better with, uh, with like mania. And so then a guy in Australia decided to just look at lithium in bipolar disease, not so much for gout, 
and he found that it worked. And, uh, you know, it was thought to be linked with lowering uric acid. And, uh, but then of course, over time, people just started thinking about lithium as a treatment for manic depression. But it's sort of interesting how it came out of the uric acid literature. Right. <laughs> and there's also this very interesting thing. There's uh, years ago, uh, it was noted that, you know, as I mentioned, that uric acid levels were high in bipolar disease. And there was some thought that there might be uh, an alteration in nucleotide metabolism in nucleic acid metabolism. Uric acid is a derivative of nucleic acid. So, and they were thinking it was like adenosine. So they started doing studies where they gave allopurinol to patients with bipolar disease. And there was like four clinical trials and, uh, you know, randomized placebo. And three of them were positive, sh showing some benefit of allopurinol. But interestingly, when those studies were done, they weren't really attributing it to the uric acid, but it's quite possible that that was uh, part of the story. So, so I think that, you know, the, this, the story, there's evidence supporting this story goes way back and there's more that needs to be done, but um, it's certainly interesting. And, and the uric acid, you know, sugars is one of your main mechanisms for driving it. Alcohol also can drive uric acid up. And, uh, you know, as we mentioned, you can make fructose from different foods. Um, and certain certain uh, foods like beer and uh, the, the yeast in the beer, not just the alcohol, can stimulate uric acid. And then in turn, uric acid can is one of the things that stimulates fructose production. So it's kind of like a, Loop a circle. Yeah. How does the, you know, because the insulin resistance piece is a part of this too, because if you think about historically insulin resistance was a beneficial thing in hibernation and and, and different right. events, again, anthropologically, oh, by the way, now insulin resistance is not so good because you're driving up blood sugar, which is in this case, blood glucose, which then feeds the polyol pathway and we're off to the races again. So <laughs> yeah. this yeah, is- let me, Yeah, let me talk about insulin resistance. So um, insulin resistance, animals, when they uh, are trying to, to store fat, they'll also become insulin resistant because they want to make sure there's, you know, they're gonna, while they're storing fat for the future, they want to make sure that there's still enough fuel to keep the body going. And when it, when it comes to keeping the body going, it's really the brain they want to keep going. So the brain particularly loves glucose as its main fuel, but the muscle uses glucose as well. So when you become insulin resistant, it's actually the muscle that mainly becomes resistant to insulin. So uh, insulin is the hormone that moves glucose into cells. So if you're insulin resistant, the skeletal muscle can't get the glucose or it gets only a little bit. So the, you're basically like insulin resistant sort of starves the muscle it reduces the amount of glucose that gets into the muscle and it's associated with some reduction in muscle mass. We can actually show that in animals that insulin resistance is what's key to, to sarcopenia, which is this condition where your muscles start shrinking. Like when you get older or if you have kidney failure or things like this and your muscles start to waste away, part of that is associated with insulin resistance. And so we don't want to have no muscle 
But if you temporarily become insulin resistant, your muscles getting less energy, but the glucose goes up in the blood, which then assures that the brain will get enough glucose. Now the brain has certain regions of the brain that do use insulin, but mu much of the brain does not. So when, when you're insulin resistant, you're reducing the amount of energy you spend because the muscle isn't using it. So you're, you're reducing the amount that you, of energy that you spend and you're kind of preserving the glucose for the brain, which is great because you want the brain to think. However, there's certain regions in the brain that are insulin dependent. And those are the areas that are involved in self-control those are the areas involved in recent memory. And those are the areas where when you give fructose, though the blood supply goes down in those areas and ATP production goes down. And so you're, and it, and it, so there are regions of the brain that are insulin, uh, become insulin resistant and they, in, you can actually measure and show that those areas of the brain are also be developing insulin resistance and the glucose is not getting in there. So the glucose, uh, you know, when you become insulin resistant, the systemic effects are to decrease the amount of energy the muscle uses, preserve glucose for much of the brain, but there's also insulin resistance going on in the brain. And those are the areas where, um, you know, reducing the ATP actually helps the animal forage. So it, it actually helps stimulate the foraging thing. And, What's incredible, we just published a paper on this. It, it turns out that those areas where insulin resistance in the brain occurs and there's decreased energy production there, those are the first areas where Alzheimer's develops. And um, Alzheimer's develops in certain regions of the brain uh, first. And it turns out to be the areas that fructose is most sensitive. And there is, if you give animals fructose for long periods of time, they start to not remember things, have trouble getting through mazes. And there's even one, one group in Egypt that gave fructose for like 18 weeks to uh, rats. That's a long time for a rat. And uh, they start developing amyloid plaques in the brain. So, um, you know, there's a pretty good argument that fructose could be involved in Alzheimer's. And another study, that, a very high level study found that fructose levels are high in the brain of Alzheimer's patients. So, and I think so fructose it's, probably is not our fructose is not our friend these days, <laughs> but, but I think you're proving again, Rick, this is the beauty of all of these disparate research projects that are actually honing on the same process, right? So right. if you're, if your IR in the brain and you are fructose heavy, i.e. your uric acid heavy in that area, what are you doing? You're actually triggering an LRP3. So that's right. probably driving inflammation. The plaque, as we've shown with the, 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 the drugs against plaque, they're not stopping the problem. So the plaque's not the main issue. The right. main issue is the inflammation. And oh, by the way, where is all this inflammation coming from? It keeps coming from the same place. Oh, by the way, what's the, one of the other big triggers for inflammasome activation? Cortisol. I mean, uh, sorry, uh, cholesterol crystals. And, yeah. And and so I I think this keeps coming back to 
this yeah. beauty of you, the way you see the world through the anthropologic view, these were all necessary mutations of life, whether it's LDL increases, whether it's, you know, fructose metabolism benefits, all this stuff is driving to the same common denominator of survival of the right. species and procreation that, oh, by the way, now is just hijacked because of our lifestyle stupidity. And then the right. only other thing I want to look at quickly while we're here, is there any data and there probably, I have not looked this up. So I am actually asking this out of the blue endocrine disrupting chemicals. Is there anything we know about that with, in relation to, is that potentially affecting uric acid levels? Um, yes. Yeah. You, you're talking about endocrine tumors. No, no. Endocrine disrupting chemicals like um, phthalates and, and, and different toxins in our environment oh. that are messing with our estrogen pathways. And is that potentially leading to uh, changes in, in fructose metabolism? I wonder if, if, because again, if we, if we're positing that estrogen helps excrete uric acid, maybe these endocrine disruptors are disrupting the excretion process. It's possible. It's definitely possible. I, I haven't studied that, but it's definitely possible. Getting back to your inflammasome story, in just the last few minutes here, yeah. there's a famous cardiologist, Paul Ritger at Mass General, who uh, has done many, many studies trying to figure out what are drives heart disease. And, you know, the Framingham had identified smoking and cholesterol and blood pressure and all these classic things that cardiologists look for to determine if you're at risk for heart disease. But he, uh, Ritger discovered that um, the inflammasome is playing a big role in driving heart disease and that inflammation, systemic inflammation, and he measures it as C-reactive protein, uh, can mark people at cardiovascular risk and that drugs that block inflammasomes like interleukin-1 inhibitors can reduce heart disease. And, but when you ask him, you know, what do you think is causing the inflammation in people out, you know, that are in the general world that are developing heart disease, what's causing their inflammation. He's not, it's not so clear, but one of the things that he's now interested in, and our group is too, is that maybe a high uric acid and the fructose could be playing a big role in it. And there's pretty good data that uric acid can activate the inflammasome and the uric acid crystals like in patients with gout uh, can stimulate systemic inflammasome activation, even when it's in the joint, but some crystals can even, uh, uh, now we're recognizing that uric acid crystals can actually occur in the plaques. And so it's a pretty new area and it's a pretty interesting area, but we think that this pathway, this fructose uric acid pathway could be driving systemic inflammation into inflammasomes that could be playing a role in heart disease as well. Yeah. And, and I'm going to keep watching this pathway for autism. I, I, yes. I can't tell you how much I believe there is a major precursor to the autism phenotype via these, these conditions. And, you know, if 20% of autistic kids are autoimmune attack of mama and a child, which is what Ramirez Celis's work starting to look at, What's driving autoimmunity? Well, that happens to be neoantigen formation from inflammation driving antigen presentation. So what's upstream of that? And it just keeps circling yeah. back to your yeah. work as the seminal for me, beginning yeah. of the understanding of the anthropology of why. And as always, Rick, your work is 
my favorite. Your book is still, <laughs> your book is Thank still you. my number one gifted book beside my wife's. I, I, I give her book out number one and yours number two. Your yeah, research. You're doing it right. My friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, uh, we're number one. I don't know about number two, but for your number one, it's yeah, yeah, always, but I really appreciate it. It's, it has been a really exciting story and, and I do, encourage people to look at nature wants us to be fat. If you want to understand more about this whole, whole story. Yep. I'm going to link as always keep up your fantastic research. I'm going to continue to follow you. And uh, when the next level of data comes out, I'm going to have you back on again. You'll probably be the frequent flyer on this program. If you'll (laughs) allow me to, if you allow me to let you be my frequent flyer, Rick. I'm happy to be so. Thank you so much for your kind words and for, uh, you know, helping, you know, champion this story. Thank you. As always, Rick, have a great day, my friend. Yes. So yet again, we have had the pleasure of listening to one of the country's leading experts in disease risk. And as well, again, discussing it from the perspective that makes complete sense. How were these genes put into place through history? for the human species. How did those genes then become compromised based on our lifestyle choices and the decisions that are happening as a society? And therefore, how do we go back upstream to make better decisions based on the science? And as always, Dr. Johnson has made an incredible case, brought it to us to say, yes, this is the likely mechanistic pathway to much of the disease we are seeing in humans. Now, again, in the beginning, it was the book, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat, the story about the metabolic derangements that are occurring from the fructose metabolism story, and then the secondary ability to make fructose naturally by the human body. And now we see it completely from a new perspective, the pregnant mother, and how critical that is for the F1 generation or the children that are being born. This is massively important. So I'm going to go into a little deeper dive into some of the science that we talked about. But before I go there, if anyone is interested, number one, absolutely read Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. Get it. It's an amazing book. Or go back to podcast number 14 and re-listen to the original story and or go to the summary that I did. Or do all three. Because I think the more you hear this data, the more it will sink in to what we all need to do as stewards of our own bodies and stewards of society. And, you know, from my perspective, then also visit his website. And his website is drrichardjohnson.com, D-R-R-I-C-H-A-R-D-J-O-H-N-S-O-N.com. And there's a ton of information there. So you have access to large volumes of discernible data that's been filtered down from the bench science, which not everybody likes to read, to an understandable story. And as Dr. Johnson stated in the podcast, and then we're going to get into the hard science again, but in the podcast, the basics are not that difficult to understand. Liquid beverages that are made up of sugar, sucrose, or fructose, this high fructose corn syrup, are tragic to the human body. Sweet tea in the South, soda, juices, uh, these coffee beverages, all of these new types, the, the, the sports drinks, all of the sugar-based, i.e. sucrose, or fructose-based, i.e. high fructose corn syrup beverages are incredibly damaging to the frame. 
They are easily absorbed in the small intestine straight to the liver and trigger these pathways that Dr. Johnson is speaking to. So as a pregnant mother, it is incumbent upon all of us as humans to support moms to make decisions around not consuming large volumes or frankly any liquid beverages. Then the second part of the story is making sure we reduce the refined carbohydrates, the flour-based foods, the cakes, the breads, the pastas, the chips, the crackers. All of those will turn into fructose by the polyol pathway, equally problematical in the long run if consumed in high volume. Fiber is your best friend when you consume food with fiber and fat, a real meal. The digestion is slowed and the volume of the fructose that hits the liver is smaller. The volume of glucose is smaller. So that's why Mediterranean diets, anti-inflammatory diets are critical. So from my perspective, that's the take home. That's the news to use from this entire podcast. But now let's take a little bit of a deeper dive. When we get into the deeper science, we're starting to understand now that it is possible that under normal pregnancy conditions, humans have used fructose primarily to protect the fetus during nutritional or hypoxic stress. And so nutritional stress is low food environment, ability to access food, or hypoxic environment, which is low oxygen stresses. Thus, While fructose is the preferred fuel for various biological processes in the early development, i.e. the first 8 to 12 weeks of a pregnancy, it is not critical for survival of the whole pregnancy, right? And so as stated early on, if placentation occurs appropriately, the spiral arteries start to increase the oxygenation of the placenta. Therefore, we switch to aerobic respiration, which is the utilization of oxygen, for development of ATP via the Krebs cycle or what's called the TCA cycle, then that's what we expect to have happen. We know that the enzyme hexokinase is expressed in the liver of the human fetus and triples in expression between the 10th and 24th week of gestation. Furthermore, we also know that xanthine oxidase, which is the enzyme that is involved in generating uric acid from IMP, which is the degradation product of fructose, is also expressed in the placenta in high volumes. And oh, by the way, both hexokinase and xanthine oxidase are expressed in way higher volumes in the preeclamptic state. Again, positing that with Dr. Johnson's research, we are seeing an elevation in these enzymes because of fructose metabolism concerns. Studies of fetal fructose have shown that fructose has a role in fatty acid synthesis, nucleic acid synthesis via the pentose phosphate pathway, so that's your RNA and DNA, as well as the synthesis of glycosaminoglycans and glycolipids, which are important in the brain, via the hexosamine pathway. And interestingly, fructose is oxidized slowly in the U fetus or animal models, despite its high concentration, whereas glucose is metabolized at a rate roughly 5x faster, despite having lower concentrations, indicating that fructose primarily likely in humans in the early stages of pregnancy is not there for an energy use. It is primarily there for biosynthetic precursors of normal development. And so what that means is that we actually make fructose in the placenta in that low oxygen environment in the beginning 
for making biosynthetic pieces. So like we talked about, glycosaminic glycans, glycolipids, nucleic acids for developing RNA, DNA, and cell walls and all the above. And then when the switch occurs, when oxygen starts to show up, then things change a little bit. But the primary fuel source really truly is glucose. This is super, super fascinating to me. So if we think about high fructose corn syrup and the beverages that are made from it, or sugar just consumed in high volume, that metabolite that comes from that process, uric acid, will rise in the body, triggering the innate immune system, as we talked about in the podcast. And that turns on something called inflammasomes. And that will lead to oxygen radicals, like hydrogen peroxide or superoxide, which is an oxygen with an extra electron. And those radicals are very, very damaging locally to cells, especially mitochondria, which are the energy powerhouse cell where we make that ATP. If those cells then undergo apoptosis or programmed cell death, that will inadvertently damage local tissue and could activate the adaptive immune response, which I am very concerned about when it comes to autoimmunity. There is data now being shown that a major mechanism in the development of high blood pressure in the kidney cells is targeted autoimmune antibodies. So maybe this process is starting very early on. That comes just from Chan et al. 2014, C-A-L-I-C-E-T-I, Calisetti et al. 2017, and Vora et al. 2021. These are some articles that I, I looked at to see in this discussion, right? So that's super fascinating again to me. Let's look at some of the work directly from his recent paper on the story of fructose and preeclampsia. In the paper written by Dr. Johnson and Dr. Nakagawa, fructose has a unique metabolism that distinguishes it from other nutrients. Like glucose, fructose can be metabolized by the enzyme hexokinase. However, fructose is unique from glucose in that it is also metabolized by fructokinase, also known as KHK or ketohexokinase. Fructose metabolism by KHK can generate some of the same products observed with glucose metabolism, including glucose, glycogen, triglycerides, and lactate that contribute, contribute to the production of energy and nutrients needed for survival. However, unlike glucose, as well as most other nutrients, fructose is phosphorylated so rapidly by the C-isoform of fructokinase, ketohexokinase C, that there is a fall in both phosphate and adenosine, and adenosine triphosphate, or ATP, in the cell. This triggers the degradation of adenosine monophosphate, AMP, by AMP deaminase toward uric acid production, termed the adenine nucleotide degradation pathway, and removes the AMP, leading to a persistent reduction in intracellular AMP, which is a further accentuated by an inhibition in AMP-activated protein kinase, AMPK. This low energy state induced by fructose metabolism by KHKC mimics a starvation state and activates an alarm system to assist survival. Specifically, fructose metabolism stimulates the foraging of food, the storing of glycogen and fat, the induction of insulin resistance to preserve glucose for the brain and a rise in blood pressure to assure an adequate circulation, all of which are very, very beneficial historically. Fructose metabolism also protects animals from hypoxia by reducing oxygen needs by reducing mitochondrial function while favoring glycolysis. The mechanisms are complex, but involves effects of uric acid to induce mitochondrial oxidative stress and endothelial dysfunction. 
Reduced mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation occurs because relatively more pyruvate is being shunted to lactate rather than entering the Krebs cycle where aerobic respiration occurs because the Krebs cycle is also inhibited due to reduction in aconitase activity and because beta fatty acid oxidation is impaired from the blocking of the enzyme enol-CoA hydratase. In addition, vasopressin is stimulated during fructose metabolism and assists survival by raising blood pressure, reducing water loss by urinary concentration and stimulating fat production as a means of storing metabolic water, as we discussed in the podcast with the naked mole rat. This also happens to be why camels have humps on their back. There is only one mechanism by which fructose is actually produced in the body, and that is the activation of the aldose reductase enzyme, which converts glucose to sorbitol, followed by the conversion of sorbitol by sorbitol dehydrogenase to generate fructose. This is called the polyopathway. Normally, the body makes only small amounts of fructose because aldose reductase is normally only minimally expressed. However, this enzyme can be activated by hyperosmolarity, hyperglycemia, ischemia, and hypoxia. And for those who don't know what ischemia means, ischemia means where blood flow is blocked. For mammals living in environments where fresh water is minimally available, such as in the desert or saltwater locations, the endogenous production of fructose with the generation of fat is an important source of metabolic water. Likewise, for animals living in hypoxic conditions, low oxygen areas, such as the naked mole rat that survives in poorly ventilated burrows, the production of fructose favors glycolysis and reduces oxygen needs, and that is also critical for survival. However, in today's society, where fructose is present in nearly 70% of processed foods and beverages, those with the highest intake are developing obesity, metabolic syndrome, and diabetes, and now the discussion we're talking about, which is the risk factor for preeclampsia. While diet is a major source of fructose, the high fructose levels in the fetus result from the conversion of glucose to fructose in the placenta from the activation of the polyol pathway, and this was shown in a study by Huggett, H-U-G-G-E-T, et al., where they injected glucose into the umbilical vessels of animals and showed a marked increase in fetal fructose in pregnant ewes, with levels in the 70 to 100 milligram per 100 milliliter range, suggesting that the placenta is not the only organ for fructose production during pregnancy. Some studies show that the fetal liver, kidney, and lung might be additional sites for fructose production. So again, positing that history has shown us that evolutionary biology has led this pathway be highly conserved throughout mammalian species in order to allow for animals to survive in low oxygen environments but specifically in the early stages of mammalian pregnancy for the child to grow in a low oxygen environment until the placenta begins to develop blood supply that's oxygenated. So this is super cool for me. Relative hypoxia, so low levels of oxygen again, will drive this polyopathway in the production of fructose. And studies have shown that oxygen levels in the human placenta at eight weeks of gestation are very low. 20 milligrams of mercury. However, by the 12th week, when we start to see that spiral artery uh, getting into the placenta, that oxygen level increases to 50. So that's when we start to see the switchover. Somewhere between 8 and 12 weeks, we see the conversion from an anaerobic to an aerobic metabolic production pathway for ATP. We also know that hexokinase is expressed in the liver of the human fetus and triples in expression 
between that 10th and 24th week, like we talked about earlier, as well does xanthine oxidase, which is a major generator of uric acid. So this was all meant to be. So we really care tremendously about this. And for me, this really starts to give us the discussion points around why this matters within the framework of the current diet of humans, especially pregnant mothers. In a recent study published in 2022 in the journal Frontier Physiology, Dr. Anna Corominas looked at the role of uric acid as a predictor of preeclampsia. Sort of, again, looking at Dr. Johnson's work from a different side, the predictive role. And they used a cutoff for uric acid of greater than 1.5, had very low predictive positive value, which is great. So it basically says if you're below that 1.5 cutoff, your risk of having preeclampsia is tiny. But a uric acid you know, level above that starts to indicate that there is a risk for developing preeclampsia. So this tends to be the discussion point where obstetricians, family medicine physicians, internal medicine physicians, anyone dealing with a potential mother or a pregnant mother needs to be considering the option of testing uric acid levels to see if they are elevated, putting somebody at risk for preeclampsia. The major article that Dr. Johnson published recently was in hypertension um, research in March of 2023. It's a review paper, and the lead author is Takahiko Nakagawa, N-A-K-A-G-A-W-A. The article is entitled, Fructose Might Be a Clue to the Origin of Preeclampsia, Insights from Nature and Evolution. Again, highly, highly recommend reading that. So if we summarize the whole sort of kit and caboodle, we know that fructose evolutionarily had a critical role in fetal growth. We know this from animal models and we know this from humans, especially early in pregnancy between just at conception up till between eight and 12 weeks. So we know this was meant to be. And we now have mechanistic realities as to this is likely a precursor problem to developing preeclampsia or hypertension and the other associated thrombocytopenia, low platelets, and problems related to this disorder. And Dr. Johnson has shown elegantly how the evolutionary biology showed us the mechanisms that now lead to the problem that we have with elevations in vasopressin for the blood pressure, oxidative stress, endothelial damage to the placenta, and then all of the disorder issues related to preeclampsia, premature delivery, perinatal complications, and then the problems to the F1 generation afterwards. So it behooves us to be really, really, really politely aggressive about discussing consumption of refined carbohydrates as flour-based foods, sugar-based foods, or sugar-based beverages, especially the high fructose corn syrup type. We need to take this seriously as a society, as individuals, as loved ones, as anything, any way, any discussion point you have with another person who is on this pathway, it's our obligation at this point to talk about this. There's no violation of Hippocratic Oath. There's no damage to telling somebody to avoid these foods or limit them. So I think it is within our right to start to discuss this topic with everybody, anywhere, at any time. Well, I think that's enough for today. 
I absolutely appreciate everyone's time. As always, I, as you can tell, think Dr. Johnson is a rock star in the space of, of research. And I, I can't wait to continue to follow his research, where he goes, what he does, what he's learning, his team, and what more we can glean from the fructose metabolism uric acid story over time. So with that, I'll leave you all. As always, hug those kids. Have a great day. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat any health issue. This podcast does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a fabulous day.